Hello, welcome to a podcast for The Lancet. Now, obviously, you'll have seen that we've got a couple of quite important papers about COVID-19 vaccines coming out today, which is Monday, July 20th, 2020. And I'm speaking with the Editor-in-Chief for The Lancet, Richard Horton, to talk about these very, very important papers. So, Richard, in a nutshell, and how promising are the results of these papers? Well, thanks, Gavin. The results of these two randomised trials are extremely encouraging, and I think should give us optimism that we're making good progress on the way to a vaccine to protect human populations from COVID-19. They are only phase one, phase two studies. So we do need to wait for the full randomized trials in phase three um, populations. But I think that we have good reason to be hopeful for the future. So these two papers uh, consist of the commonly referred to as the Oxford vaccine and also the China vaccine. So what's the difference between the two vaccines? And are they currently at the same stage of development, roughly? Well, the the China vaccine is a recombinant adenovirus vectored vaccine. And what it's doing is expressing the what's called the spike gene from uh, the coronavirus. Um, and it's based upon a virus that was widely prevalent in Wuhan. The Oxford virus is a chimpanzee adenovirus um, viral vector, and that also expresses the spike protein as well. So they do have differences, but they are also uh, related. They both have a very impressive impact on generating both antibody-related and what's called cellular-related immunity. And that, I think, is the the great step forward that both of these studies um, are telling us, that, that both arms of the immune response can be provoked, can be stimulated um, by the, these two vaccines. And that's why I think we can be hopeful as we go into the phase three studies. Now, of course, as you mentioned, these are... Um phase one and phase two combined results. So obviously that's something to be cautious about. But uh, could you summarise, I guess, what we still need to remain, keep in mind about these vaccines, if you will, what we should remain cautious about with these results? Well, what these results are telling us are that these two candidate vaccines are safe. There were no major adverse reactions from either vaccine. The kind of adverse reactions that one saw were symptoms like muscle fatigue, general malaise, feeling feverish, headache, and of course, because it's an intramuscular injection, pain and sensitivity at the injection site. And these kinds of adverse reactions can be relatively easily prevented by taking, for example, paracetamol before you actually receive the the vaccine shot. So that's the first thing. The vaccine is safe from these studies. It's also, and this is a word that is used by vaccinologists, um, and I'll explain what it means in a second, it's immunogenic. And by immunogenic, I mean it's stimulating the immune response. As I was saying, these two arms of the immune response, the humoral response and the cellular response, um, antibodies and T-cells, these two vaccines are stimulating both arms of that immune response, and that's, that's very important. It's not telling you that these two vaccines 
are efficacious or effective in preventing COVID. They're simply telling you that the first, the first base, so to speak, or maybe even the second base, has been reached. That we've got safety, they're well tolerated, and they're doing the right things immunologically that we need them to do um, if the vaccine is going to work. Right, but we have no proof that these vaccinations prevent COVID-19. No, we're not at that stage yet. Um, right now, if you take, for example, the Oxford trial, that's being tested in, in phase three studies, uh, in not just in the United Kingdom, but also in Brazil and in South Africa, where, of course, there's a lot of transmission of the virus at the moment. And they're also testing that vaccine in um, some of the high-risk populations that we know about, people who are older, those who have chronic disease, uh, people who are health workers on the front lines of the, the pandemic. So we will get extremely valuable and useful information from those phase three studies, but they're not going to be available for some months. So looking at the broader picture then, obviously vaccine development is a uh, huge priority for pretty much you know, every country in the world at the moment. It's something that uh, the world is in desperate need of. So we have this massive acceleration of vaccine research. Of course, the kind of thing that would normally take years is actually being done in, in weeks, in months. What challenges are posed by accelerating this timetable so hugely? When Tony Fauci was giving evidence to the United States Congress recently, he was asked about the usual time it takes to to produce a vaccine and uh, the evidence that he gave he said seven years um, and he was asked what's the fastest time a vaccine has ever been produced and he gave the example of a Zika vaccine which took about 18 months although the Zika outbreak the outbreak had pretty much ended by the time there was a vaccine so it never was fully brought to fruition but let's say that 18 months has been the, the shortest time so far. I think we're looking at roughly the same time course here. And there's a, there's a real trade-off because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a vaccine that works and also a vaccine that is safe. And it's very important that one is not going to rush a vaccine into clinical use until you can be as sure as you must be that the vaccine is safe. Now, inevitably, um, no vaccine is 100% effective or 100% safe, and it won't be taken by 100% of people. So you're trying to make sure that you've got all of the evidence available to show that it is maximally effective in as many populations and high-risk populations as possible, and that it's maximally safe. So we do have to go through these very important tests before a vaccine can be released for general use, if, if we do reach that point, because we do need to be sure that it is as safe as possible as well as effective. There are also other interesting twists. In one of the studies that we published, the, the study from China, um, they found that the immune response in older people wasn't as 
effective, wasn't as strong as it was in younger people. And so as they're moving on to do phase three trials, they're now going to introduce a second dose, a booster dose of the vaccine for older people that will hopefully stimulate their immune systems more because it looks like they need to be stimulated more um, to get a good response to the vaccine. So these, these twists in the vaccine story are going to take place over the course of clinical testing. Um, and that's why I think we should be optimistic um, about the direction of travel we're going in, but not so ambitious that we think we're going to get a vaccine, um, for example, by the end of the year. Um, if we have a vaccine by the end of 2021, we will have done incredibly well. So you mentioned there the twists and turns, of course, in uh, in the story, I guess, of, of these vaccine developments. I think... Um, one thing it's worth talking about, I guess, when we think about these twists and turns, is the global state of affairs and the, the state of like global cooperation between different countries, between different actors in this storyline. So why do you think that global cooperation currently seems so fragmented when we're looking at the kind of overall global tackling of this virus? Yeah, I, I mean, it's very fragmented. And, and in some ways, it's understandable. Governments have a first duty to protect their own publics, their own people. And so they're going to do the best they can to make sure they've got enough vaccine for if, it, if and when it comes to protect their people. But the danger of that is that, that many countries will lose out and only the strongest country, um, the country with the most money, will win. I think if you take a global perspective, um, then you, I think most people would agree that the, those who should have access to the vaccine first are those who are most at risk of developing severe, even fatal disease if they become infected. And we know enough about this virus now and the disease it causes to know what those risk groups are. Older people, people who are living with chronic disease, uh, black and minority ethnic communities, people who are on the front line of the epidemic, that's to say people who are working in healthcare settings, people who might be working in supermarkets, um, people who are working on mass transit systems, people who are coming into contact with other people all the time. Now, those are the groups that need to have access to the vaccine first before the rest of us. And if we could agree that through some sort of global convention um, or understanding uh, resolution passed at the World Health Assembly, some mechanism that takes place to agree that those are the groups that gets the vaccine first, that would be a huge step forward. Right now, there is a real danger that those groups most at risk will not get fairly or equitably treated um, if a vaccine does become available. And that should be a cause of not just global concern, but actually global shame um, if we're not able to find an agreement to protect those most vulnerable groups first. 